The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, March 14th, the free lunch edition. I'm Isaac Butler, a journalist and podcaster in Brooklyn, New York, and father of Iris, age four. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 17, Teddy, who is 16, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 18. Today, we'll be taking a listener question about placing your kids in a religious preschool you're not totally comfortable with and speaking with the authors of the book Pressure Cooker, why home cooking won't solve our problems and what we can do about it. Plus, as usual, triumphs and fails and recommendations. And in Slate Plus today, we'll discuss the unfolding college admission scandal that's engulfed everyone from Felicity Huffman to investment bankers and even the Obama's former tennis instructor. All that and more this week on Mom and Dad Are Fighting. All right. First up, we have triumphs and fails. Rebecca, sock it to us. Do you have a triumph or a fail this week? I have what I will cautiously admit to as a fail, even though it makes me really uncomfortable to say it out loud. (laughs) And it does relate to that unfolding college admissions scandal that we are all riveted by this week. Me especially, of course, being in the middle of this process. We're waiting to hear back from seven schools for my high school senior son. And yesterday when the story broke, I know I work in a newsroom. We had the the CNN on. We watched the FBI press conference. I kind of wandered over to my uh, favorite work wife's office and we were chatting about it. And she just said, um, so let's be real. Between you and me, if you could pay $15,000 and get Henry into his first choice school, would you do it? (laughs) And be guaranteed. <laughs> and I had the same response, honestly, that I had when I was going through my horrible, like the worst part of my horrible divorce about a decade ago. And someone was like, let's be real. If you could just have your husband killed, wouldn't that be easier than this? <laughs> <laughs> and the response is, um, you know what? I'm not going to lie. I would think about it briefly. And then I would realize it was wrong and not do it because it's terrible in like a hundred different levels. But it's also just speaks to I'm this is like I just want to be clear. I am completely disgusted by the story and I'm in no way excusing it. And then when you phrase the question exactly that way. If, if, if it would cost this to, you know, get your kid exactly the thing that they're hoping for above all hope, um, you sort of take the, the the legality out of it for a second. Of course, you, your instinct is to be like, yeah, I would do that. And then what it is in this instance, what it is that they want actually makes that question just wrong. It makes the question itself wrong. So my, my fail right. is that I think like most people would, but most people wouldn't admit when I first answered the question, I was like, I'd think about it, but I definitely wouldn't do it. And then my second answer was like, don't tell anybody I said that. I definitely just wouldn't do it and I wouldn't think about it. <laughs> but that's also not right. the, the honest answer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, the frame of the question is a bit of a setup, that, as, as right. you note, right? It's it's that like by saying that, that by reducing it simply to your kid could get X if you do Y and ignoring all the other extenuating stuff like they're taking a place someone else can't get, you know, et cetera. Um, uh, it really sort of. I think primes you to answer the question, yes, whether you actually would or not. Exactly. Exactly. And so I will admit my fail 
is that I listened to my gut and said the wrong thing for the right reasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. That's great. And also both my kids are away this week, so I don't really have a lot of parenting stories to tell. So right, <laughs> that was the right. one I decided to confess to you. That's <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Well, uh, I have a triumph this week, and I feel like it is not just my triumph, but all of our triumphs in the greater mom and dad are fighting community. Uh, because um, I don't know if this has happened to other listeners with uh, small kids, but um, the whole spring forward daylight saving time thing has been a uh, complete disaster in Sucks. our household. Yeah. Um, you know, last time I was a guest here, I talked about how Iris's bedtime was becoming later and later and fraughter and fraughter. And actually the week, uh, the few weeks before we sprung forward, it was getting really great. It was getting earlier. It was much sweeter. You know, we were just, it was just everything around the house was improving. And then we, those clocks friggin changed and uh that first day um iris really lost it like starting at dinner you know that first sunday she i guess that's last sunday right she just lost it starting at dinner and um i can kind of see the the signs that some ridiculous hurricane is about to hit our family uh because it usually starts with iris having one of her stuffed animals yell at us about something <laughs> So, like, one of her stuffed animals, it's usually Birthday Bunny, whose thing is he has a birthday every few weeks. He's now 35 years old. Birthday Bunny uh, just started yelling at us. about. I just I don't even remember what it was. Right. Um, uh, and so it starts as this sort of like, is it a joke or is it not a joke? And then suddenly Iris is getting herself more and more worked up and worked up and worked up. And then um, all hell breaks loose. Right. And so. In the midst of all of this, which started at dinner and then transitioned to all the bedtime routine and everything like this, um, you know, I, I was just having this moment where I'm like, my, what is going on? My kid is acting like this. Like, what do I do? I can't sanction this behavior, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, uh, uh, I heard as if he had um, visited me in a vision, Carvel saying a thing he said the very first time I was a guest host here. Um, sometimes you just have to realize you're negotiating with a crazy person. <laughs> and I was like, yes, spirit of Carvel. Sometimes you do have to realize you're negotiating with a crazy person. So at that point, once I had that epiphany, it was like, I'm not going to argue with her about anything. I am not going to worry about, you know, standards I am setting or reinforcing or whatever. I'm just going to do whatever it costs to get this child under the blanket as quickly in her bed as quickly as humanly possible. Would you have paid $15,000 in the moment to get that done? In that, <laughs> in that moment, because it's a victimless crime in that moment, I might've honestly, mm. but uh, uh, if I had $15,000 to do so, you know, like it was one of those things where it's like, okay, let's skip the bath. Let's skip brushing the teeth. And I was like, Iris, we're just going to get into the, into bed. And she was like, no, we haven't brushed my teeth. I'll get cavities. I was like, fine, we'll brush your teeth. You know, normally Anne and I trade off, but this time Anne came upstairs to help us because Iris couldn't listen to me. And we just like moved all through it. While I should say I was not rising to the occasion of getting offended by Iris saying the cruelest things anyone has ever said to me in my life things like um 
I wish you weren't my parents. Why don't you find some other child? That was one of them. And then Mm. one time she was like, I'm just so tired. And I said, well, why don't we get into bed? And she said, no, all your plans are terrible. You're the worst. (laughs) So like, uh, you know, and it's like once I had this moment of like she's actually just going crazy right now because she's overtired. Like I wasn't even offended by that. Like I can tell that story now because it's just funny, you know. And so it just became about let's get this kid under covers. And, you know, the second we turned the lights off uh uh she was basically asleep i mean she right. was maybe asleep 30 seconds later it was right. really real and then afterwards you know Anne was like god i'm so sorry you had to deal with all that and part of me was like yeah i mean it, it, it doesn't it never feels good to have your child say horrible things to you but at the same time it's like you know we were just negotiating with a crazy person and That's so right. um uh so i'm i it was a big triumph i feel like and uh, a triumph that directly came from applying the wisdom of carvel wallace wow you know, I never get that, but he gets that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so his, uh, how do you pronounce it? His sagacity? Sag- how do you pronounce sagacity? Is it sagacity? This is his sage-like, well, never mind. Uh, his sageness. You, yes, well, you know, Carvel's sage-like, uh, you know, demeanor, I guess, um, you know, just exudes that kind of wisdom. There is something really funny, though, about little kids and what they think is the worst thing they can possibly say. Oh, you know what totally. I mean? And they and they definitely go straight to I don't want to be your kid. I ne- I wish I had never been born. Yep. Uh, I wish I had a different mom. It's like these are the only things they can think of that will cut because that's the only context they have for who you are as a person is the fact that you're. <laughs> yeah, parent. totally. The the other thing that Iris <laughs> brings up when she gets really sad is she brings up how much she misses Anne's father who yeah. um who died but before Iris was old enough to form memories but you know Iris sees photos of him and stuff or how much she misses my dog who died uh, when Ugh. Iris was about six months old. So there's a weird thing as well where she does this when she gets sad that it's sort of like she wants to communicate that sadness in a way that is sad to us by using things she knows we are sad about right wow it's wild kids man kids man and their little lizard brains i know i know (laughs) (laughs) all right well uh i think now it's time to do the business Check out Slate's parenting newsletter, which is the best place to be notified about all our parenting content, including mom and dad are fighting, care and feeding, ask a teacher, my parents' work-life balance, and much, much more. Sign up at slate.com slash parenting email. As always, if you have a question you'd like us to answer on air, leave us a message at 424-255-7833. Or you can email us at momanddad at slate.com. Also, check out our Facebook presence. Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. It's a really fun community, and we moderate it so it doesn't get out of control. In Slate Plus today, we're talking about Operation Varsity Blues and the lengths the wealthy and powerful will go to to get their kids into college. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing Mom and Dad are Fighting and your other favorite Slate shows. And, of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, go to Slate.com slash Plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. 
Food pundits love to tell us that family meal time is a solution to a Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Whole host of social ills. But Pressure Cooker, why home cooking won't solve our problems and what we can do about it, argues that solutions are more complicated than that. And that positioning family meals from scratch as a cure-all places undue burden on women and the underprivileged. Pressure Cooker explores the kitchens of nine women from different social and economic backgrounds to tell the story of what it takes to feed a family today. We're joined by the authors, Sarah Bowen, Jocelyn Brenton, and Seneca Elliott to talk about it. Thanks for coming on the show, all. Thanks for having us. So, I mean, let's just start at the very beginning. What what got all of you uh, interested in doing this study and the book that came out of it? This is Seneca. Um, we started this research when there was a lot of uh, prominent food writers, people like the journalist Mark Bittman at the New York Times, the author Michael Pollan, who just published his book, Cooked. Um, And these prominent foodies were telling us that we needed to get back into the kitchen to restore our health and even the health of the planet. Uh, And it's an appealing message, but we wondered what's really going on in average families' homes? What does it really take to achieve the foodie ideal of a home-cooked meal? So are you a bad parent if you uh, order takeout? (laughs) (laughs) This is Jocelyn. Uh, No, you are not a bad parent if you order takeout, but you know, really... (laughs) Really, our job is not to say what good parenting and bad parenting is. What we want to do as sociologists is we want to look at this question of what does it take to feed a family these days? What are families facing? What are the joys they're experiencing? What are the burdens they're experiencing? And the results of this study, um, I think, shed a lot of light on some solutions Mm. that we could come up with that could help individuals and families. You know, one thing that that those authors that you pointed to earlier that they kind of uh, often discuss is this almost mythic past, you know, the the fabled great grandmothers of yore making food from scratch with fresh ingredients and gathering the family around the table to talk about their day and, and, and whatnot. But one thing your book makes really clear is that very few of our great grandmothers were actually doing any of this. So like what were they actually doing? What is what is the reality behind that mythic past. This is Sarah. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot. I have two great grandmothers and one of them does look a lot like the great grandmothers that Michael Pollan talks to us about. She was an immigrant from Sweden and they moved to a farm and eventually bought it. And, you know, she, she killed the chickens for Sunday dinner. She is the kind of great grandmother that Michael Pollan is talking about when he tells us to eat like our great grandmas. But my other great grandma worked in a factory she would get home late at night during the weeks uh, on the weekdays and, you know, she would fry up bologna for dinner and things like that. She didn't have a lot of time for cooking. And I think she would have welcomed some of the pre-made meals that we have today. Mm. And so when, when we talk about our great grandmothers, who are we talking about? There are a lot of people that, um, you know, we're not talking about immigrant families in urban areas that were clustered together. We're not talking about sharecroppers that were trying to to eat by on, on land they didn't own. We're talking about a very specific, narrow uh, fraction of people. And so what are 
some of the barriers your subjects confront, you know, if they were to try to eat like this mythic past? This is Seneca. Uh, so there are a lot of barriers, as it turns out. You know, so the idea is that you're eating lots of uh, fruits and, and vegetables that are, are fresh, um, unadulterated. Uh, that requires having access to a grocery store that carries those that you can get to easily, having a, a refrigerator that you can uh, store those in to keep them fresh and crisp. Um, it also means cooking meals from scratch, and so this requires having a, a sharp knife, a working stove, a kitchen counter space. And it also means eating around a table with your family. And this requires having a dining table and chairs and your family all being able to be at home at the same time. And these things are actually harder for families to pull off these days um, than it might sound. The working class and poor families did have uh, small kitchens. Um, they were living in trailers that would get hot and smelly when you cooked. Um, they had didn't have sharp knives. They didn't even have a pot to boil uh, beans on often. Many didn't have dining tables or chairs. And many people were working in jobs that were um, non-standard and unpredictable um, hours. So they would never know who was going to be home at what time. Um, and maybe they were taking different shifts so that they could cover um, childcare. Uh, so that meant that it was hard to get the family together. But it was also hard for middle-class families who were experiencing uh, needing two adults in the household to keep the family above water, who um, had a lot of work obligations, felt that they were kind of expected to constantly be on demand at work, um, and also had high expectations for how they spent their time with their children, you know, this expectation to spend quality time with kids. One of the things that I think is really interesting is how much labor is around cooking at home. I mean, we talk about the actual time, the, you know, the the chopping, the washing the vegetables, the having the space, having the time, having the, you know, the area in which to work, having the tools. But there's also the additional time of going to the grocery store. And, you know, by my account, when you go to the grocery store, you handle each item at least three or four times. You're picking it up, putting it in your cart, taking it out of your cart, putting it on the conveyor belt, putting it back in your cart, putting it in your car, and then bringing it into your house. It's a few hours on the weekends, really, buying all the food that you might need for the week. And if you want it really fresh food, you're going to have to go more often than that. There's also food prep. There's the dish doing and cleaning up afterwards. I mean, it really is. I mean, I cook a lot. And, you know, on the on the times that my husband or my kids will make the mistake of saying, hey, what time are we eating tonight? Because the answer is always like we're eating when we eat. Like, do not ask that question because there's a lot of work around it. Um, it does make this uh, the, the time is money kind of labor part of this, I think, isn't something that people think about when they are writing these kinds of like Michael Pollan-esque books. Right. That's correct. This is this is Jocelyn. Um, so all of these things that you're talking about, this is what mothers described. And, and a lot of this is the invisible labor that goes into preparing a meal. Things like chopping the vegetables, family can see doing that, even, even physically going to the grocery store. But what you're pointing to is what a lot of the mothers we interviewed talked about. It is keeping track of multiple family members' preferences. You have one child who will eat carrots, but the other child won't eat carrots. And you have a husband who will eat white rice, but he won't eat brown rice. Uh, and, you know, mothers are also doing that invisible labor of knowing what's in the pantry, remembering what they have stocked up and what they don't. It's making out a list if you're doing meal planning. And then, like you said, um, 
it's going to the grocery store and handling different foods. And especially for the middle-class mothers, they talked a lot about um, doing research around food, figuring out, uh, should I buy organic? What are the chemicals that are on these foods? They were very worried about those things. And it took a lot of time and research to um, figure out what they should be buying. And still, they felt a, a certain degree of anxiety or uncertainty uh, even when they did finally make their choices. So that's a lot of labor. And, and, you know, that even that that research thing gets even more uh, intense as, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom about nutrition seems to change every five to 10 days. Can I add one thing? Can, this is Sarah. And then Jocelyn might have something else to add about that. Uh, but as you say, I think it's really important, the intersection of time and money. If you have enough money, there's lots of things you can do to save time. You can have your groceries delivered to your door or you use um, meal kits to sort of take some of the work out of figuring out what's for dinner. But for a lot of families, you know, they didn't have that extra money. And then time really is this, this, this big uh, pressure. It, it takes a lot of extra time, for example, to go to, to multiple stores to find the things that are on sale. It's more expensive to buy pre-cut vegetables, even though that saves you time. So you can save money by by chopping them yourself. But of course, that takes extra time. So so the intersection of money and time was important for a lot of families. Mm. You know, as our use of the word moms over and over again in this interview makes makes clear, the burden of all this falls disproportionately on women. Um, I'm thinking a lot, for example, about your subject, Leanne, whose you know husband takes great pride in her ability to cook, but also will not help her with it. Um, uh, you know, what are some of the um, examples of the effects of that burden of that, you know, invisible labor on your subjects? This is Sarah. I think that um, it was important that not only were most of the mothers that we interviewed across the entire study, most of them were responsible for the cooking, but they also, not only did they do the work, but they felt responsible for it. And in the case of Leanne, um, she was a good example. She did almost all of the cooking and her husband would occasionally help out, but he tended to help out with special meals, like he brushed barbecue sauce on the ribs for the 4th of July. Leanne was the one that cooked day in and day out when nobody wanted to, and the kids were cranky, and they had to get dinner on the table really fast. And that was true of of moms across our study, and it's true of families across the United States that that moms are still mostly responsible for for getting dinner together, and moms are the ones in particular who cook when no one else wants to, when you just have to do it. And, you know, one obvious solution is for men to step it up with regards to housework and cooking. But you are very careful to note in the book that, you know, as great as that is, it's not a panacea, that there's that there's a lot more that's needed. What what are the, you know, I know that you're eager to talk about some solutions for these issues. So what are some of the other solutions we should be looking to? Yeah, so this is Seneca. A lot of the solutions that we've been given for our cooking dilemmas, you know, just make time to cook uh, develop your cooking skills, make family dinner a priority. They ask parents to to work harder, work smarter, do more. Uh, And we found that this was hard to achieve in reality, but also, you know, putting this onus on families um, is really offloading um, these uh, responsibility for some very large issues that uh, families are up against onto the individual. Uh, So in the book, we talk a lot about some of the ways that we can collectively support families in um, their efforts to raise happy, healthy children. 
um, having uh, universal health care so that you can deal with health conditions as they arise, um, having uh, access to quality child uh, care that's subsidized so you um, can have a place where your child can be taken care of, you can feel good about them being there um, while you're um, working. Those are just a few examples, but families in the U.S. don't have this. In countries where families have access to these kinds of policies, parents are much happier than they are um, uh, in the U.S. But that tells us that these policies really work. You know, uh, uh, I do feel like you know this is this is a parenting podcast. I know I I'm responsible for the the cooking in in our house, and and I I feel some of the burden that you're talking about, especially you know we we read lots of scary news stories about how what your kid is eating can affect how they focus in class or their long-term health outcomes and, you know, everything like that. Um, should, should we be finding, you know, some, some comfort in your study in how widespread all of our struggles with these issues are? I think this is Jocelyn. Um, I think that our study um, findings, there's comfort we can take in it in the sense that mothers can stop blaming themselves. Or if it happens to be a father like yourself, who's in the kitchen cooking, um, we are saying we need to um, take this fight out of the kitchen in the sense that we need to stop asking individual families to do more. And we saw that a lot in our study that mothers uh, care deeply about their children's health. They were trying very, very hard and they still felt like they were coming up short. And many of them were coming up short. There were many mothers in our study who experienced food insecurity. And so it's comforting to know that, okay, I am trying, I'm not getting ahead. And it's not because I keep doing something wrong. Um, But the solutions that we're pointing to, as Seneca noted, they take collective efforts. And it requires uh, many organizations, groups, and the government and policymakers coming together and deciding that Food is a basic human right, and that's we all benefit from supporting families. And so, some of those policies these are these are longer term goals. They they take a while, but they're they're worthwhile goals. I think we can take comfort in, in the fact that some of the benefits of family meals are also overstated. Which mm. is not to say that cooking and dinner are not important. They're very important. But a lot of the studies that show that, you know, if you make time to eat with your kids, then your kids will do better in school and avoid drugs and alcohol and all of these things. A lot of those are correlations and not causation. And probably what is most important is for families to have time to bond together and to talk and to share and to be together as a family. And for lots of families, dinner is the easiest and best place for that to happen, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And the food doesn't have to be perfect either. So I think we can take some comfort in that as well. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, great. Well, the new book is called Pressure Cooker, Why Home Cooking Won't Solve Our Problems and What We Can Do About It. Uh, We've been speaking with Sarah Bowen, Jocelyn Brenton, and Seneca Elliott. Sarah, Jocelyn, Seneca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Isaac, I have a question for you. Yeah. Is there a rule in your house that the person who didn't cook uh, is in charge of the cleanup? No. The rule in our house is we alternate who puts Iris to bed and whoever's not putting Iris Ah, to bed does the cleanup. But pre-Iris, the rule was uh, I did the cooking and did the the cleaning, which actually changed the way I cooked because I I had to be considerate of her and the amount of work she was going to have to put in when I was done. And I I never sort of thought that way before. So I used to do these sort of much more elaborate, messy, you know. 17 pans. Yeah, well, a lot of it was also like, ah, you know, each 
ingredient I'm going to portion out into a different ramekin. Got it. You know, yeah. it was a lot of that kind of stuff that yep. if you learn your um, cooking from TV, uh, Golden Age Food Network, you know, like, you know, if you've watched a lot of good eats, that's what the cooking <laughs> ends up looking like. Um, totally, totally. Uh, and so now I try to plan the more elaborate meals for being like, well, am I cleaning up that night? Or, you know, I mean, we have a, a, a woman comes in once a week to clean our apartment. So as they point out in the book, you know, my ability to cook is reliant on, you know, someone else's Having labor help. who yeah. is a woman of color, you know, and um, one of the points they make in the book is that a lot of those mythical great grandmothers uh, either were those um uh, women of color or were relying on the labor of women of color hmm. to get that done. And, you know, one of the other interesting points they make is that, of course, a lot of that work now is no longer, you know, having um, someone who works in your home and cooks your food, but instead going out to a restaurant. Right. You or know? ordering from a meal delivery service, right. which also employs a workforce that we don't see. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right fascinating. Well, the rule in my house is if you cooked, you don't clean, but the person who's in charge of cleaning can resource it any way they want. Make the kids do it. Have the kids help them. Whatever. <laughs> That's good. That's really good. When <laughs> Iris is a little older, we're, we're just at the point where she's clearing sometimes. Yeah. You know, or, or because she finds it fun. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then then we'll get through the times when she no longer finds clearing fun. And then hopefully eventually she'll be helping with the with the dishes. Right now she likes helping baking um Desserts, because right. then she gets to lick the, the spatula. Exactly. It's fun. Yeah. Next, we'll take a question from a listener. Read for us, as usual, by Slate's IT astrology enchantress, Sasha Leonar. Hi, mom and dad are fighting. I have a four-year-old daughter in preschool. She will do another year of preschool before starting kindergarten because of how her birthday falls. She is currently going one day a week to two different preschools. She is doing great academically and socially. One preschool is 30 minutes away in town, is more expensive, and the class size is really big. They have structured their curriculum to be more of a play-based learning, but my daughter seems to prefer a more structured style. The other preschool is right by our house, which is very convenient since we live so far out of town. The teacher is a retired kindergarten teacher. She is very structured, and she is a great teacher. You can tell her passion is helping kids learn. The class size is small, and I am able to come help once a month in class. I am planning on having her go to this preschool by our house next year, twice a week. Partly because when I ask her, she prefers this one, partly because she has a couple friends who will be going there, and partly because I don't know how I will be able to work and transport her around every day if I have her go to a preschool in town. My issue is probably my issue alone, but I'm worrying about sending her to this preschool because the teacher will randomly insert God into the curriculum. I was raised Mormon. I left the Mormon church for a number of reasons, sexism, racism, LGBTQ issues, doctrinal issues, etc., a couple years before having my daughter. I have such a bad taste in my mouth for anything religious being preached to my kids, in large part because of how I was raised. My husband thinks I am overreacting, and I realize I am especially sensitive to any kind of religious teaching slash preaching slash pressure. One example, though. The hurricanes were going on at the beginning of the year, and she brings it up to the kids during circle time and says, God creates hurricanes. My eyes nearly bugged out of my head. I signed her up for town preschool right after this happened. There haven't been any other really WTF things like that. Just, a God created you, said randomly, and... We are celebrating the real meaning of Christmas. I've been treating it like this is what some people believe. Other people believe this or that, and this is what I believe. 
and I have been trying to explain different cultures and customs. My daughter and I talk about religion quite a bit because our extended family is still Mormon. Am I just worrying because of my issues? Should I drive an hour every day next year for a different school that is more expensive, with a larger number of students, and that is possibly less liked by my daughter? Or should I keep her going to this preschool and try to supplement at home with more science? I've even thought about sending her to kindergarten early, but everything I have read says to wait. Thank you in advance, Mom in the Boonies. Oh, man, I so relate to this question. Do you mind if I take it first, Isaac? No, no, you can take it while I sit here shaking with rage. Okay, great. All right, so I so relate to this question because I am an atheist, and I, especially when my kids were little, felt an incredible amount of discomfort when other adults in their life, like my in-laws, for instance, would try to inject religion into things that I had sort of made it clear that I had boundaries around. Like, for instance, um, you know, I my kids aren't baptized. And it was super important to my in-laws that they become baptized. And they would talk about it all the time with my ex-husband. And it was just sort of a whole thing. Literally, like, they're going to go to hell if they're not baptized, if they die. All these things that I just, like, like made me so infuriated. Um, And then, you know, it kind of got to a point for me, I'm not exactly sure how I made ended up making the shift. I mean, I do remember once my kids still tell the story about how they were visiting their grandparents. This was shortly after the divorce. So they must have been like four and six. They were visiting my ex in laws for Christmas. And my mother-in-law said, oh, we're going to get in the car and go for a ride and go look at all the Christmas lights and around the neighborhood. And they actually took them to mass on Christmas Eve instead and just like surprise the kids by taking them to mass, which oh my God. Um, the kids didn't want to do or didn't expect. And um, and I think it may have been that incident that kind of <laughs> made me realize that like a lot of this stuff sort of was living inside of me, but also outside of me. Um, So I'm assuming, I think it's safe to assume that this, you know, preschool that you're sending your daughter to right now, one day a week, and that you want to send her to next year, two days a week is not a public school. So I'm just going to go ahead and make the assumption that there's nothing illegal (laughs) about this daughter, about this teacher, or unethical about this teacher bringing up God, um, you know, in the classroom. I also think it's pretty clear that you know what your beliefs are, and you know how you frame things for your kids, and that assuming, as keep in mind, this is another big assumption, assuming there's no alternative preschool that's also equally close and convenient to your house, the alternatives you're talking to about this preschool put like a huge burden on you. They put the burden on you to do a ton of extra driving twice a week. They put a burden on you to consider the probably unwise choice of sending your daughter to kindergarten early, which I have also read would not be uh, necessarily the best thing long term. And what you're really talking about here is a teacher who has a set of beliefs and because she no longer works in the public school system is comfortable just once in a while saying them like that's the calculus there. So I kind of understand what your husband's saying when he says, you know, this isn't a big deal or whatever, because it's easy to say, okay, this is one year of your daughter's life, two days a week. Occasionally, like God will get slipped in. Um, Like it also reminds me of when I was a kid, Isaac, you remember that show Davy and Goliath that was on when we were kids that was produced by uh, the, the Mormon church, the LDS. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't watch it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I I loved that show, and I would watch it, and at the end when they would start talking about God, I would just change the channel. (laughs) (laughs) I watched a lot of shows that had ads from the LDS church at the very end of them. Totally, totally. Yeah, Yeah. and so, so, I mean, 
I'll tell you what I would do. I'm not going to tell you what you should do because I think this is one of those things that, like, in my opinion, you have a strong gut. It sounds like you make really good decisions. What I would do is weigh all of the consequences of not sending my daughter to this two-day-a-week thing next year versus the potential consequences of her hearing some factually inaccurate God reference as an explanation for science uh, while she's four years old, two days a week, once in a while. Uh, it sounds like you're able to be there a lot. It sounds like you're able to sort of get a read on what's going on. Those are the two things I would weigh. I can tell you that my parenting style makes it so that I would probably lean toward sending her to this preschool, making sure that, you know, we continue to talk about the things that uh, are science-based at home, and just kind of getting through it. I mean, I know that might not sound like an easy, clean solution, but that's probably what I would do. It reminds me a little bit of... Um, The year before my older son, Henry, was going to go to this sleepaway camp that his dad had gone to, which is two weeks, like we didn't know whether or not he would even like sleepaway camp. So we sent him to a super local sleepaway camp that's right in our town, like three miles from our house. And it's run by the Greek Orthodox Church. And it's run by actually a friend of ours uh, who works for the church and runs this whole camp. And my son, who was like eight or nine, um, went to this camp and they had mass every day. And, you know, he'd been raised by atheists and he was not into it, but like... It was the holistic idea of going to this camp experience. Like his best friend went to the camp as well. That was like, you know, there, here's what's going to happen. Here's the expectation. But also, no, you don't feel like you have to pretend like you're into it. Don't feel like you have to, you know, the camp is cool. I'm sure you're not the only kid there, you know, who's, you know. So we just kind of got through it. And he ended up having a great time. And he ended up sort of talking about the church part of it. Like he learned something, you know, he sort of got exposure to something, a a way people think that he didn't know before did not make him any more religious or any less convinced that it's weather systems that control hurricanes and not God. Um, But that was our experience with that. So if it were me, I'd probably be as vigilant as you are and do the easier thing because the other thing just sounds like a terrible lifestyle choice that'll make your parenting experience harder. And you need to weigh those two things. Yeah, this is interesting because I would also recommend, you know, weighing these two things against each other because, look, every school has something wrong with it. You know what I mean? Like like every <laughs> educational choice you make with your kid is going to create some kind of more work for you. Right. Like no matter what it is. I mean, there's always just something you got to do. Uh, and so I, I would also, you know, make the kind of two column list of pros and cons of both of these options, you know, uh, uh, and weigh them. I personally, because of my own personal life story and, and voyage to atheism and, you know, the the church I grew up in and, you know, all sorts of stuff like that, I, I personally would probably wind up making the opposite decision of what Rebecca chose. But that actually doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Because it's like we're not in your situation. You know, only you are in your situation. You as a parent, of course, have the right to send your kid to a school that, you know, is instructing them in a way that you feel comfortable with and that 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 fits your life and everything like that. And so I think you know what that is or you can figure out what that is by talking about it. I would say that if you choose to send the kid to the school that's further away and that's more inconvenient, blah, 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 because this other situation makes you uncomfortable, um, I don't think that's just in your head. I think that's you, you know, making a choice about what matters to you in your child's uh, education. Um, The only other thing that I would say is that um, just for a moment – 
think about, you know, all the things that Rebecca was saying, you know, I'm assuming from the letter, you know, X, Y, and Z. Uh, I have no idea what the administration of that preschool is like or what the vibe of the preschool is um, uh, or its mission or anything like that. It might, you know, there, there might be a step between taking your kid out of that school that is like talking to the administration of the school about your discomfort with the way this teacher is operating in the classroom and seeing what happens. Um, so I, I also just would say I don't think it's a binary uh, it's not necessarily, without knowing the details of the situation, it is not necessarily a binary choice. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I would, I'm wondering whether or not this mom has ever even asked the teacher about this at all. Because it sounds like she knows her. She spent some time in the classroom. Right. You know, it, it would be, I would be curious to know, you know, if a parent were to approach this teacher and say, you know, especially an involved parent who is really invested and says this is a wonderful teacher, and, you know, does it kind of like, like a shit sandwich says, you're a wonderful teacher. Like right. my, my daughter really prefers this school and really loves it. You know, my one reservation is that sometimes, you know, some religion is being slipped into the curriculum, um, especially when it's around, you know, things that seem science oriented. And that's something I'm not super comfortable with. And I'm, I'm not sure how you feel about me giving you that feedback. But it's, you know, it's it's made me think about you know, whether or not this might be where we want to go next year. And I really want to come here. So, you know, build like a shit sandwich like that. I'd be super, uh, you know, curious about what the teacher might say. She might literally, and I don't want to say she might have no idea because it sounds like she's been a teacher for a long time. But it might, it might, sincerely, the answer you might get might be, you know what, this is a Christian preschool and that's just how we're going to do it. And that might make your your decision a little bit easier. Right. Totally. The, the answer might be, you know what, it never even occurred to me because that's how I talk with my grandkids and the other parents seem, I've never, no one's ever given me that feedback before. You don't know really, unless you have that conversation, it might be worth having uh, unless your own discomfort makes it so that you don't want to, but <laughs> I'd Which be again is okay. That. Yeah. 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 Totally. Totally. Yes. Well, um, Mom in the Boonies, thank you so much for uh, writing in with this question and uh, let us know how it goes. Well, we have come to the time in our show where we recommend things. Rebecca, what you got? I would recommend something that uh, is a thing I used to do with my kids when they were younger, and I was recently reminded of it when my son pulled out the supplies and did one himself a couple weeks ago, which is that I used to have my kids make their own T-shirts where they would uh, make some art, uh, you know, a painting or a drawing or color in a coloring book or draw their own version of some character that they love from TV or a comic book or whatever. And then I would scan it and then I would go to Staples or some other big box store and buy those um, transfers that you can print onto. And then you iron them on to make T-shirts onto like super inexpensive plain T-shirts that you can buy in six packs and so forth. Uh, my favorite favorite were always the um, transparent transfers. It's a little bit trickier, but I would recommend if you decide to try and have your kids make your own t-shirts with their own art, I would recommend that you do the transparent ones. They last longer. uh, They're more washable. But the trick is you have to reverse the design after you scan it. And luckily, most of these t-shirt transfer packages come with instructions reminding you to do that. I can't tell you how many backwards t-shirts I've accidentally made. And there are only like, you know, 10 of 
these things in each box. So it feels like this huge waste of time and labor and money after you've like done it wrong. So just keep in mind, look at the instructions. Um, but it is super fun for your kids to have, you know, pajamas or T-shirts. My kid is at one point, um, one of my sons had a birthday party and he only had like six kids coming. And as his birthday party favor, he made everybody a T-shirt with the same design on it that he had created and he helped me iron them all on. It's a very, very shockingly easy craft that ends up with something that they can enjoy for a really long time. So that's my recommendation. Get yourself some of that t-shirt transfer paper and try it out. I promise your kids, if they love art, will love it. That's great. That's great. Uh, So this week I am going to recommend uh, a board game because I know that uh, in our parenting group they always like it when, you know, people have good board game recommendations. Uh, This one was actually a gift from a friend of the family's. It's called Race to the Treasure Board Game. Um, And, uh, you know, you can buy it anywhere games are sold. Uh, And it's really quite lovely in part because it is a cooperative board game. And at least Mm. if you have a child who's, you know, four, five, or six – They don't really enjoy the fact that they can lose at a game. And sometimes you want to engineer a situation in which they lose so they can learn an important life lesson from that. And sometimes you want to get through your Saturday. And so for those days when it's raining outside and you just need to get through your Saturday without uh, only watching TV, um, Race to the Treasure is really great. You and the other players are working together to get to a... um, you know, a a treasure chest before a very silly looking ogre um, makes it there. And you do that by like building a pathway to using these cards that you draw. It's really delightful. Each each round of it takes maybe eight minutes. Every time Ira sees the ogre, she bursts into laughter. Uh, It's thoroughly charming. I just highly, highly, highly recommend it. Wow. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Race to the treasure. Uh, It's a board game. Check it out. Here's a preview of this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, sign up for Slate Plus already at slate.com slash momanddadplus. My increasing absolute vitriol towards super rich people is not being tamped down by this scandal, especially since I know how it feels to want this thing for mm. your kids so badly. And the experience that the rest of us or that those of us who are not super rich, who are not married to the guy who made all those stupid cheap clothes for Target have to do is literally just cross your fingers and, you know, let your kid write his own essays, by the way, and like wait and see. Thanks for listening. Again, if you want to hear the whole thing, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash mom and dad plus. OK, and now we've come to the uh, end of our show. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Benjamin Frisch. If you have a question you'd like to ask us on air, leave us a message at 424-255-7833 or send us an email at slate.com. You can also join us on Facebook at our Facebook group. Just search for Slate Parenting. For Rebecca Lavoie, I'm Isaac Butler. Have a great week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at Chabacasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.